Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Sometime, um, he and I could see eye to eye, physically speaking. Um, I was uh, Samuel's youth pastor for a season when he was young. Now he's not. And I went away. I got a job. I got a wife. And then every once in a while I come back and it's always, it's always a great pleasure to come back and see new people and old people and other people. (laughs) All right. So um, we are going to be going through some sections of uh, the book of Jonah, a story that anyone who has attended children's church or taught children's church is probably familiar with. My encouragement for you today Um, is that you go home and you read the whole book, 40 verses, 50 tops, very short read. But as you're reading it, I want you to ask yourself these questions. What has the Lord instructed me to do recently? What has the Lord instructed me to do recently? And am I obeying or running away from that thing that the Lord has instructed me to do? Who would be served by my obedience if I do the thing that the Lord has instructed me to do lately? And most importantly, who in your life is so wicked, so deplorable, so, insert favorite bad word here, that they do not deserve the love of Christ? Okay? Those are your four questions. Once you have some answers, pray that the Lord would soften your heart. Pray that the Lord would soften your heart and lead you to where he wants you to be, lead you to doing the thing that he wants you to be doing, because you are eventually going to get there. You're either going to get there smelling of your favorite bath soap, or you'll get there smelling of fish guts. There is going to be a bit of an option there. So stand with me, and we will read from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. So go to Matthew and then take a left. Go back to the Old Testament a few books, and um, Jonah should be about number 4 or 5 thereabouts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call to your your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. And the sailors say to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the man greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let us pray. Lord of hosts, thank you for the honor of being in your presence with your people. Thank you for loving us in spite of what we are like. Soften our hearts. Grant us the grace we need to be more like you. To love all people with a selfless love as exemplified by you. Teach us to love others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In a way of background... Jonah, whose name means dove, is the son of Amittai. Amittai's name means the truth of God. So dove, the son of truth. I, I think that's great. He was from Gath-Hefer in Galilee, Israel of the divided kingdom, and he ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, is the only mention we have of Jonah's ministry. So it reads, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So, this is Jonah's recorded work. This is all that we know of his work. Let's jump to Jonah's book. So, first three verses, which is... Unfortunately, where I'm going to spend most of my time, we're not going to get very far in this chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
The phrase translated, now the word of the Lord, in this version it reads, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In more literal translations, it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, indicating a continuation. There are things going on in Jonah's life, and the word of the Lord came to him. He wasn't sitting around twiddling his thumb, going, okay, all right, waiting for something, right? He was doing things, and the the word of the Lord came to him. What was the word of the Lord? Get up, head to Nineveh, and speak against what is going on there. Now, most prophets, hopefully most of us, would receive such a word and give a snappy little salute and go, yes, sir, and run off and go do the thing that the Lord has commanded. Right? That's what we would do, right? All of us? At worst, an eye roll. Lord, do I have to? Okay, fine. And then we would go and do the thing. But not this dove. The text does not record his verbal response, but he got up from that conversation and he packed up and he went the other way. Why? We're all of us saying, Lord, do something with me. I want you to do something. Call me to something. And here is Jonah given something significant. And his response is to run away. Why is he running? Well, there's a little bit of uh, history that we're going to talk about to explain why Jonah is running away. His last prophecy in 2 Kings chapter 14, which I read earlier, led to the expansion of the kingdom of Israel. He prophesied, the king went out, he fought a few battles, and he expanded the land. I'm sure Jonah got some very good press from that. Maybe even a few interviews on Good Morning Israel and some late night shows. Jews, like Americans, are very patriotic people. How then would an evangelism mission to the enemy up north fare for Jonah's approval rating? I mean, at this time, he is the prophet of the expansion, all right? If anyone knew that he was going north, it would not go over very well for his reputation. Obeying the Lord challenged Jonah's reputation. But wait, there's more. The Iraqi city of Mosul, spelled M-O-S-U-L, so I would pronounce that Mosul, but no, it's Mosul, stands where Nineveh used to be. So Mosul kind of sits on both sides of the river Tigris, but Nineveh was on one side. There are many Ninevite ruins over there. Um, I, I fancy myself a little bit of a, of a Google traveler. I go to Google and look up pictures of a place, and I'm like, wow, that's nice. All right, great. Next. Um, so I did look around Mosul for, uh, while I was studying. Loads of old architecture, old buildings, uh, various ruins. Syriac Orthodox Church is still relatively active there, and they have monasteries and just, you know, big old church buildings, all stone and everything's breathtaking. Some of these sites have been destroyed by ISIS, unfortunately, but none of that is particularly important to the text. It's just, you know, uh, the next time you guys play Trivial Pursuit, you'll have a little bit of information. You're welcome. 
Nineveh was a great walled city that for a time was the capital of Assyria. The Bible records it as the prime example of wickedness and violence. So in the Bible, where you see Egypt, Egypt tends to um, portray or is a picture of bondage. Okay, Nineveh and Assyria are the picture of violence and bloodshed. The prophet Nahum spends his whole book talking about the destruction of Nineveh, which is going to happen about 150 years after Jonah. But um, Nahum 3, verses 1 to 3, Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. That's Nineveh. That's a tough town. The Assyrians were a cruel and bloodthirsty people. We're going to get a little graphic, but they were some of the first people to castrate people as a punishment. They would conquer a city, chop everyone's heads off, and make a pile of skulls outside the city gates, just to make a statement. I found no written evidence of this, but several pastors have said that the Assyrians would cut the skin off their victims and put it up on their city wall, just to make a point. They took no prisoners, but they killed in very inventive ways. They were a wicked, wicked people. And so from Jonah's perspective, if Nineveh is destroyed, there is less evil in the world. And if there is less evil, then fewer people are going to die horrible deaths. Makes sense, right? Makes human sense. But obeying the Lord challenged Jonah's reasoning. But wait, there's still more. Assyria was at this time expanding, and it was expanding towards Israel. So war was on the horizon. If the Lord destroyed Nineveh for their wickedness, there would be no war, right? Apart from them being Gentiles and being very awful people, Assyrians were Israel's national enemy. So Jonah is like a Kuwaiti man instructed to go and preach to Saddam Hussein's troops before a 1990 invasion, right? It's not going to be very popular with his friends. Or a Polish uh, Polish Jew going to preach to the Germans in 1939. It's not going to go over very well. Now, keeping that in mind, that when we share the gospel, we speak out against someone's way of life, right? We pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would convince them of their need for salvation, The expected response is Acts chapter 2. They were cut to the heart and cried out, Brothers, what should we do to be saved? This is what Jonah doesn't want. A bunch of Assyrians calling out to the Lord, calling out to him and saying, Brother, what should we do to be? He's like, I don't want to be a brother. You guys are wicked. Jonathan Swift, who's an author, old and dead, wrote wrote the book Gulliver's Travels. And he was 
an, an eminent satirist. He wrote a verse that expresses Jonah's fr uh, frame of mind. And as I was digging about doing research, um, I learned that this verse has been put into a few songs, which I do not remember, but here we go. We are God's chosen few. All others be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. Instead of being a dove, a bearer of good news, Jonah does a very human thing. And he runs from the mission. He runs from the Lord. He leaves the people of Nineveh to their destruction. Because obeying the Lord challenged his patriotism. Instead of going 550 miles northeast on land, he goes 20 miles southwest to Joppa and catches a boat headed west. Scholars are not convinced on the location of Tarshish, but the theory is Spain. Based on other recordings of Tarshish, there's mention of precious metals that come from there, and archaeology suggests suggest that Spain at that time had that technology, the materials and the technology to do all of the things. There's a Looney Tunes episode in which Bugs Bunny runs out of a building and he hails a cab and the cab driver goes, where are you headed? Go far away and fast. And the cab driver drives one block and stops at the corner far away, uh, far away and fast. Jonah however, wants a spot on the next ship headed far away and fast. He strives to go away from the presence of the Lord, the text says. Elijah and Elisha were curious as prophets because they said several times, the Lord before whom I stand. That is just something that those two said, the Lord before whom I stand, in reference to their ministry. And they're the only ones that I know of who say that. From this perspective, if we we're to take that statement and say that, that that defines a prophet's mission, then is Jonah really running away from the presence of the Lord? No. Based on our knowledge of the Bible, can Jonah actually run away from the presence of the Lord? No. Based on Jonah's knowledge of the Bible, in verse 9, he proclaims that the Lord made the sea and the dry land. He knows he cannot physically run away from the presence of the Lord. Secondly, in chapter 2, his prayer has many phrases that seem like they're taken straight out of the Psalms. It indicates a measure of familiarity with the book, right? Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So Jonah is not running away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is running away from his responsibility. Jonah is running away from his reasonable response to the love of God. He's running away from his ministry. I reason, 
Jonah is like a very logical child who goes to his friend's house to play instead of cleaning his room. Why I think this is very logical is because when the kid is asked, why didn't you clean your room? I couldn't clean my room because I wasn't here. I was at Johnny's house. I can't minister to you because I'm not here. I'm not where you sent me. I'm over here. The reason that Jonah runs away is one of the key themes in this book. And we're going to skip ahead and go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prays, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The Lord does not destroy Nineveh because Jonah eventually goes to do the preaching. When he gets there, he smells of fish guts. I'm sure he looked a right sight. But he did the thing that was asked, and the Lord relented the disaster that he had planned for Nineveh. And here is Jonah, the most successful Old Testament evangelist, a whole city, hundreds of thousands of people converted, and he's moaning. Lord, told you this would happen. Paraphrased. Lord, I knew if I preached, they would repent and you would forgive them. They're my enemies. Grace is all good and fine. But forgiving Nineveh is just a bit too much grace, don't you think? And the Lord responds to Jonah in chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. So we're going to read, I'm going to read all of chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you a right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed up the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and said, I, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah again, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, and I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend to it or make it grow, it sprung up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city?
Jonah's love for Israel, his disdain for the Ninevites, and possibly his desire for reputation, superseded his agency to obey the Lord. Where most of us run for fear of failure, Jonah knew he was going to succeed and he still ran. He was the expansion prophet. He wants Nineveh destroyed. He wants the Assyrians gone so that Israel is safe. That's, those are not bad reasons. What makes them bad, what makes his reasoning wrong, is the fact that the Lord told him to do the exact opposite. The reason Jonah is in the wrong is because God told him to do something else. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of the Lord God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All people. This is where it gets a little bit real. I told Paul that he came to me in a dream. Paul doesn't usually do that. Do you come to people in dreams, Paul? Okay. I kid you not, while I was preparing, I had a dream, and Paul came to me, and he goes, every time you preach, you just tell us something good, and it's great. Could you challenge us a little bit? So it's Paul's fault, all right? No, this is the Lord. If you are like that Kuwaiti man sent to preach to Saddam's troops, as they're bearing down on your homeland, what do you do? What do you do? Anyone? No, you go. You go. U.S. politics are crazy. I've heard people say they will not talk to relatives and friends because of how they voted. That's insane. But that's where we are. Go to whomever the Lord sends you to. Whomever the Lord puts in your life, you go. The liberal family that moved in next door, you go. The loud, annoying redneck at work, you go. The young man whose belts always seem to leave his underwear showing, a foreigner, the illegal immigrant, the list is endless. When the Lord tells you to go, you go. The Lord has put these people in the orbits of our lives for this reason. Those people who moved across the street are not a coincidence. The Lord has put them in front of your face for a reason. That you and I would love them like we love the people in this church. That you and I would love them like Christ loved us. Like Christ condescended to reach us. The economy of the kingdom does not have accidental meetings or useless associations. 
One of the books in my intangible library is entitled Crazy Book, a not-so-stuffy dictionary of Bible terms. It is as informative as it is entertaining. Unlike Pastor Bill, I have no jokes. I'm a solid book nerd. So, here's the not-so-stuffy entry on Jonah. Feel free to titter, to chuckle, or laugh, but there are no guffaws allowed. Jonah, what's on your mind? I am angry enough to die, literally. How do you feel? Angry, confused, disgusted, jealous. Profile, work in education, classically trained prof uh, prophet, innovator, I built a shelter. Places you have lived, Gath Hefer, birthplace, Joppa for a few hours today's, Mediterranean Sea for a few other days, current city, Nineveh, outskirts. Details about Jonah. Likes shade bushes, likes the wrath of God. Dislikes the foreigners, the Assyrian Empire, the ocean, fish guts, lack of shade, the gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and the ready to relent from punishingness of God. Favorite song? Runaway by Del Shannon. And the entry goes on. So Jonah opened up the envelope that spelled out his super-secret mission from God, and the tape recorder started playing. Your mission, Jonah, should you choose to accept it, is to preach to the evil city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, so that they may repent, then I won't destroy them. As always, if you're captured, blah, 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 the tape recorder destroyed itself, and cue the music. Those of you who are familiar with this one, yes. Cue the music, cut to Jonah packing for a trip, but he goes in the wrong direction, doesn't he? Jonah chose not to accept his mission. Instead, Jonah ran away. Nineveh was due east, so Jonah caught the first ship toward the west, running away from God, from God's mission, and from Nineveh. Why? Because Jonah hated Nineveh on account of the great evil that Nineveh had done. He didn't want to see them repent because he did the math like this. If Nineveh is destroyed, there is less evil in the world, and if there is less evil, fewer people will suffer and be murdered. To make a long story short, God pulled a few fish strings, a fish story in itself. Um, the next thing Jonah knew, he was standing a few clicks from Nineveh. God said, your mission, Jonah, and you will accept it, is to preach to the evil city of Nineveh. Jonah preached, the city repented, including even the cows, so God did not destroy them. And was Jonah ever furious? And he said, see, God, this is why I ran away. I knew you would do this. I knew that you're a forgiving God and that just uh, that's just what I don't like about you. How can you forgive such an evil city? Grace is all good and fine, but forgiving Nineveh is a little bit too much grace. Jonah sat down beneath a little desert bush, and when the desert bush wilted and died, Jonah felt sad. And God said, Jonah, you love that little bush. Shouldn't I love Nineveh? which has 150 people in it, not to mention all the cows. Now that you know what happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 4, we'll talk a little bit about chapter 4. The first, point, uh, first thing, the population of Nineveh, according to the book, according to the Bible, is 120 people who do not know their right from their left. What does that mean? Well, that 
phrase is routinely linked with the knowledge of good and evil. So it's used to indicate infants or children. And so technically, Nineveh has 600,000 to probably a million people. 120,000 of them are children who are still too young to know good from evil. And we get that from Isaiah 7, verse 16, and Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. In explaining in the Lord's conversation with Jonah about the plant, I'll paraphrase very poorly in an attempt to clarify. Jonah, the plant that you pity so much came up while you were sleeping. You had nothing to do with it, but it pleased you, so you're angry about it. Listen, son. It was my pleasure to create every one of those people in Nineveh. I knit every single one of them together in their mother's wombs, and I have counted the hairs on their heads. I know when each one is going to turn gray. There are animals in Nineveh, Jonah. I made every one of those too. I know every one of them. They cry out to me when they're hungry, and if I do not provide for them, they despair. I am so involved in their lives that I know when a sparrow in that city dies. When was the last time you cared about a sparrow? Should I be like you and be happy with their destruction? I have so much invested in that town. I have every right to be merciful to them as I have been merciful to you. And you, young man, have no right to be angry about it. Let's wrap this up. So what? I've said a lot of words. So what? Well, here it is. We are all of us messengers of the gospel. How did we become messengers of the gospel? We heard the gospel and responded to it. That's all the criteria that's needed. You do not have to be a pastor, you do not have to be an elder, you do not have to be a church leader. Just by hearing the gospel and receiving it, you are now a messenger of the gospel. We are all as Jonah in certain people's orbits. You might be the only Christian that someone ever meets. That's a little bit ridiculous. We are all heralds of God's love, and heralds of the coming wrath. Do we all agree on that? Do we all agree? All right, and let's get on to the next part. The love of Christ, the message of the gospel, is for all people, not just the ones you like, not just the ones who vote like you, not just the ones who think like you, not just the ones who tan like you. It is for the black, the white, the pink, and the blue. It is for the gay, the straight, and however otherwise bent. It is for hippies and rappers and rockers and bikers and truckers, tweakers, criminals, weirdos, the sick, and the deranged. If it is classified as homo sapien, it needs to hear the gospel. It needs Jesus. And it is our mandate to share the love of Jesus 
with all of them that come in contact with our lives, whether or not we really like them or agree with anything they're about. And it's not just to talk about the love of Christ. We have to display it. You cannot have experienced the mercy of God if you do not display it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48, from the Amplified Translation. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, to show that you are the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the wicked and the good. He makes the rain fall upon the upright and the wrongdoers alike. For if you love those who love you, what reward can you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brethren, what more than others are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles, the heathen, do that? You, therefore, must be perfect, growing into complete maturity of godliness and mind and character, having reached the proper height of virtue and integrity, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All of us. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. What nations are, are excluded from that? None. What people should we not love? None. I pray and pray with me that our personal prejudices should not be subject to our proclamation of love for the Lord. Princeton used to be a very nice conservative little town, didn't it? It's changed a little bit. It's not so much anymore. It's changing like the rest of our nation. What have you done in response? Have you prayed for people? Have you gone out to reach people with the gospel? Have you loved people? Or have you shaken your fist and bemoaned the loss of your city, your county, your country? You know who else did that second thing, the sh fist shaking thing? Pharisees. John chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him, Jesus, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That was their attitude to all of the good that Jesus was doing. Let us not be like that. Do not let your ideals restrain you from loving people. The mercy of God is not limited to a particular people or lifestyle. It is for all who would believe. Let God change them. If they need to change, God will change them. They will believe only when you and I exemplify Christ by our words and our actions. Why you? Because God put them in your, in your orbit. God put them there. You have a connection with them that I can never have. Leverage that. The Lord has done this for a purpose. Application point number two. We are for Christ first, 
and then every other allegiance comes after that. Nationality, football team, whatever else we claim to be, we are Jesus' ambassadors first and foremost. An ambassador does not speak for themselves. They speak for the government they represent, and especially when they disagree with the administration. They have to speak for the administration. In the same way, though I utterly despise, I utterly despise one-legged pirates who drag race lawnmowers, if I meet one, I should subdue my dislike for one-legged pirates who drag race lawnmowers and represent Christ to them every time. Americans are a very patriotic people, just like Jonah. Please do not let that get in the way of the work of Christ. Will you go and preach the word? In, will you go and preach in word and deed to illegal immigrants, to anarchists, to terrorists, and all those other people? We should. We should. If the Lord puts them in your life, engage them, serve them, love them. Mow their lawns, wash their cars, invite them to dinner. Be friendly, be loving. And especially if they do not reciprocate, do not stop. Because the Lord did not stop with you. Love all the people. Serve all the people. Represent Christ to all the people, not just the ones who like you. What has the Lord instructed you recently? Are you obeying or running away from that instruction? Who would be served by your obedience to what the Lord has instructed you lately? And most importantly, who in your life do you think is so wicked and so bad and so just wrong that they do not deserve the love of Christ? Think about those things and pray about those things and let the Lord do the work that he is going to do with those answers. Let us pray. Father, I know you listen when we pray, and you delight to hear from us. You say in your word that all your promises are rendered to us, yes and amen, in Jesus Christ. You who are able to do immeasurably more than our requests and imaginations, Lord of hosts, we come humbly before you and ask that you would do immeasurably more with us, do more in us and do more through us. We commit our lives to you. We commit this church to you and ask that you would do more here. Pray that you would breathe more life into this church. You raised an army from a valley of dry bones. Father, we are here living and willing beings baptize us with your spirit that we may be powerful witnesses for your love to all people. We accept in faith your finished work to save us from the wrath of God. 
and in response to your love, Lord, we desire to live in obedience. Strengthen our weak hands to the work of the harvest. You say that the fields are ready. Fortify our hearts and our faith, for they are weak. Strengthen our shaking knees that we would stand for the glory of your name and love you by our obedience. Grant us these things and more, Almighty God. To you who are able to do unimaginably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To you be glory and honor, now and forever. Amen.